Well, let's do what we always do. Let's start with your notebook turned over. And again, what we're trying to do is, is get these um, disciplines just really ingrained into uh, your, your mind and your thinking. Um, I, I'm excited this morning because you're going to see um, how discipline one really is going to have an impact on everything that follows. Including, You've seen that in discipline two, how a man of God who shepherds his heart when he steps into a family, God expects um, that family to be greatly impacted by the leadership of that man. He has to be a certain kind of man for the home. You're going to see today that the same is true in ministry. That it's not just any kind of man that God uh, is desiring to use in ministry, but it is a certain kind of man. A man of power, um, a man of full of the Spirit, and a man uh, who's fully convinced. Uh, you'll see that in the Apostle Paul this morning. But let's let's remind ourselves where it all begins. It all begins back at Discipline 1 with the heart. Um, that you and I need to shepherd ourselves, bring ourselves intentionally to the Word of God um, so that we might fellowship with the God of the Word. That's the whole point. It's a relationship. And the best that you can have of God revealing Himself to you apart from, and I'm not trying to diminish this, apart from the indwelling spirit. I mean, that's the best you can get. But you get God revealed to you most clearly now through the word of God. And so to maintain your relationship, to build your relationship, to strengthen your fellowship with God, to strengthen your love for him, to express your love for him, to express your worship of him, to, to grow your fear of him, to... Um, fortify your obedience to him in this relationship, that cannot come apart from the word of God coming and being on your heart. You interacting with God, with his word at the inner man level. It has to be there. That is a must. If that is going on, whatever else God brings to you, you are fortified for, you are ready for, you are equipped for. Um, because you are a man who has been near to God through his word. And uh, you will be used by him in great ways. The first arena of impact that you are to have is in your home. That's discipline two. Um, it is easy for men. It's easy for sinners. It's particularly easy for sinful men to play leapfrog over these first two things. To play leapfrog over their own hearts and to play leapfrog over their homes. To get to other people, to get to other uh, demands. But we can't miss our homes. We can't miss our, our, our parents if we're young. We can't miss our siblings if we're young. As you grow, you can't miss your roommates. Um, as you get married, you can't miss your wife and you can't miss your children. Those people that you live with in a household, it forms a special relationship. It forms a special bond between those people. And you need to uh, make the first impact of the gospel on those people. Uh, there needs to be an aroma of the gospel that comes off of you and impacts those people most of all. First of all, um, again, as, as we said, the, the, it's easy for a man when he's at his youngest ages to want to get out of his house, to not want to be with the people in his house. And um, that is one of the greatest strategies that the devil has, uh, to make men ineffective or to get men pushed to a, the edge of disqualification. Keep neglecting your heart. Keep neglecting your home. 
and you're going to get to the edge and all it's going to take is one little thing after a pile up of a whole bunch of other things to push you off the edge because the people in your home uh, have not been cared for well by you. They, they've lost respect for you. Uh, your children want to run away from you. I heard um, of, a, of a young lady who, um, in fact, I was trying to remember where I heard this. I think it was from Smed yesterday. A man was, <clears throat> he was a pastor of a church. He was a preacher, uh, was preaching uh, the Bible. And when his oldest daughter reached college age, she went away to college. And at Christmas, um, she never came back. And they tried to make contact with her. They made contact with her, and she just said, I'm never coming back because of the way Dad was. Um, that is a disaster. And, and that is a disaster that I am capable of, and so are you. That man is not a unique, odd case of a man. He's, he's like me, and he's like you. And that will happen if you do nothing. The people in your home will suffer because of what you will become and what I will become. So we have to shepherd our hearts. And we have to then step into our homes and foster those relationships there with the gospel. When we do that, we are ready to step out into the lives of people in the church and beyond the church for evangelism. Um, that man, no matter where you will go, when people press into your life and they look at you and they, they watch you and they get a more inside glimpse of you, will only find you to have been exactly what they discovered you to be because what you are at home is what you are with them and what you are um, before God in his word is what they find you to be a, a humble man a transparent man a, a man who loves God a man who's quick to want to repent a man who's quick to confess sin those kinds of things um, and we're going to this morning I'm excited because we get to introduce discipline three from first Thessalonians um, discipline four then is kind of a a, a discipline that is connected to the first three, it, it puts the, the qualifications for deacon and elder, but primarily deacon, in front of you. And, and we're going to, in January, um, encourage you to start prayerfully keeping those qualifications for deacon in front of you. Okay? Um, really, any of the qualifications can be summed up by what you are as a man of God, how are you shepherding your heart, uh, what are your home relationships like, and then what are you like with people. Um, outside of your home relationships. So discipline four really is kind of a, a way of summarizing and, and reinforcing disciplines one, two, and three. Discipline five is, is called the hermeneutic. Um, by the end of the year, uh, we're going to be, uh, if you look at your calendar, I think the, the last, I can't remember. In fact, do you, does somebody have a, a, this year's calendar? Uh, yeah, March. The last one of March and the first two of April will be three in a row. You'll just get the um, the hermeneutical shotgun blast coming right at you. Um, we want to encourage you to to handle the Word of God the right way. Um, read your Bible from left to right. Study your Bible from left to right. Interpret your Bible from left to right. Uh, don't push things backwards into your Bible. Let God progressively unfold Revelation the way that He did. And your interpretation of Scripture needs to follow that pattern where you interpret in a progressive way. It, the, the way that God inspired His Word. I mean, think about how many centuries they went before they ever even got to Jesus crucified, Jesus of Nazareth. We knew that Messiah was going to suffer. We knew that. But think how long it took to get there. That, that was an incredible amount of patience 
that God had to reveal progressively. There's a degree of hermeneutical patience that is required of you. That if you're going to develop something, take the time and start at the left and move to the right. And take the time that it takes to do that. Because you'll ensure that you're not pushing later, more specific revelation back in a place where it doesn't exist yet. But it also requires you, because God has revealed progressively that if you preach from the Old Testament, you can't end your sermon with just the Old Testament. You can't. Why? Because God revealed more. And so you can't just stay back with an old passage. You've got to keep moving forward if you're teaching a study or a lesson or, or anything like that. So we're going to walk through that more specifically. And lastly, discipline six, you're doing all of these disciplines, not just anywhere, but you're at Grace Bible Church. And so you need to understand what Grace Bible Church is about. And we'll spend our last meeting of the year on that one. That will be a combined one with the ladies in Wellspring. We'll probably do it down here in the music room and and uh, I'll be together. It's one of my favorite ones of the year. So there you have it. Elders, any of you guys have anything you want to add to any of this? Um, an encouragement? No? Just a reminder, keep fighting to read through your Bible in a year if you can. Okay? And if you get sidetracked, just pick up today, wherever today is on the reading plan. Just start again today. Okay? Uh, if you're a day behind, two days behind, you, if you think you got some extra time and can make it up, do that. That's great. But just start today. Uh, you need to become the man who's going to know this book well um, from front to back. Okay? All right. That is what we will cover for now. Let's take some time and let's do some small groups. Guys, if you'll take your uh, green homework sheet, your assignment sheet first, I want to make a... Um, Make sure something's clear. So get your green um, assignment sheet for January 14th, 2012. That'll be the next time we're together, about a month from now. Um, I want to make something clear on question number one. Based on what we're going to do today in 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 to 10, we're going to talk about the gospel because... Um, that's obviously present in, in First Thessalonians. It's present in anything that Paul writes. Um, but I want to make question one clear. What is the gospel? Clearly explain the basic content of the gospel and what effect that basic content has on the sinner being saved. Include relevant biblical passages. Look, I know on, at one level you could just like say, uh, see the writings of Paul in the, in the New Testament. Okay. Obviously, we don't want that. Um, but I have never seen a guy who has erred on that side in build. <laughs> what I have seen is on the other side, um, not something as crass, or not crass, but just uh, Jesus got my number. You know, not that side, but that's too. Don't go on the other side of Jesus died and I believe it and that settles it or whatever. Don't do that either, please. Give some thought to this. The best that you understand where you're at, you guys are being transparent in, in, in just some amazing ways. It's really encouraging in, in the small groups. Just be transparent and say, this is what I understand the gospel to be. If, if I was going to share the gospel with an unbelieving friend, what would I include? 
what would I want to make sure that they know that would make it clear to them about what their response to the gospel should be? And then write it out and, and put some passages with it. You're, you might need to use a little bit more space than what's provided here. You can turn over the back and write. But, but um, I want you to be clear. And you don't need to write a, you know, a dissertation. But I, I don't want it to be just a short little paragraph either. Okay? Does that make sense? Um, and then you can answer. I think the rest of the questions will be self-explanatory. Okay? That's for next time together. All right. Discipline three, the ministry, the example of Paul. I love First Thessalonians. It is a great passage. As we get ready to look at it, let's pray. Let's ask God to meet with us as we look at his word, okay? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do ask for you to um, reveal yourself. Um, thank you for your Bible. Thank you for this opportunity um, to draw near um, to you through your word. And we pray that you would um, give us the help of your Holy Spirit who illumines our hearts, who, who loves to reveal Jesus, who loves to testify uh, to your Son within us. And so we pray that his ministry, even within us this morning, would be vibrant and powerful. Um, we pray that, Lord, you would make us soft to receive these words as we consider your word. And um, Father... Press this down deep into us. Make us um, eager to be the right kind of men with the right message, the gospel. So, Father, open our eyes to see this chapter, First uh, Thessalonians 1, and uh, help this to be unforgettable. Um, we ask this help in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We're going to make five ministry statements to help us understand Discipline 3 this morning. Before we do that, I want to read through chapter 1 with you, the, the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, 10 verses. Paul says in verse 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now, he has been with them, or he's been away from them now. No, no, stop. He was with them for at most three months, at a minimum three weeks. Because he mentions, uh, it mentions in, in Acts 17 that he was with them for three Sabbaths. Um, but it's more likely that he was with them longer than that. He might have just been reasoning in the synagogue for three, of sa three Sabbaths of that period of time. But keep this in mind. A church exists because a man was preaching the gospel in Thessalonica for less than three months. <coughs> That's pretty amazing. And he is writing to them now. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you. There are um, two different uh, verbal phrases that follow now this giving thanks to God always for all of you that tell us what he prayed about. The first one is in verse 2, making mention of you in our prayers. That's how he gives thanks to God. He, he makes mention of them uh, in his prayer to God. Secondly, verse 3, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Actually, there's three. So the second thing in his prayer is he's bearing in mind their work of faith, 
their labor of love and steadfastness of hope that he was able to see within three months period of time. The third thing that modifies and describes his prayer in verse two is in verse four, knowing, brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. So we give thanks always knowing God's election of you. Now, everything that follows from verse 5 is going to be off of an explanation he gives for how he knows that they were chosen by God. He knows that they were chosen by God, in verse 4, because of what he says in verse 5. And this is where we're going to look at. For, here's how we know his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you. For your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. I was with you for three months. I've been away from you a little bit, but you become an example to all. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and they themselves report how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and how you are waiting for his son from heaven. Who's this son from heaven? He's the one whom God raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now we're going to focus on verses 5 through 10. Here's your first ministry statement to help you understand what discipline three, the ministry is all about. Number one, ministry has only one message. That's your first blank. Ministry has only one message and then you have your hyphen, uh, and that's the gospel, right? That's your second point, the gospel. No-brainer, but want to make sure that we uh, include the no-brainer things um, so as they're not missed. Paul is, in verse 5, he's affirming positively something, and the thing that he's affirming positively is that the gospel did indeed come. Now look at it, look at the way it's worded. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. Full stop. When, when, a, when a parent says, I will not only let you have another portion, but you will also get dessert too. What is the parent positively affirming on the first part? Oh, you do get more, right? It's not saying it didn't, you're not going to get any more. But the point is, is you're, you're really going to try to emphasize it's not only this, but it's that. But what I want to make sure you understand is that don't skip over the, the obvious thing. The word did come. The gospel did come in words to Thessalonica. Now, that's not his main uh, thing that he's going to run to next, as you'll see, but that is the first thing you can't miss. The word, the gospel did come in words to the Thessalonians. Now, what I want to do for a moment is, is I want to take a step away from 1 Thessalonians, and I want to give you an example of the way that Paul thought about the gospel. Um, in other places. Um, so we're going to come right back to 1 Thessalonians, but I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1 for just a moment. Romans 1. So that you can see what Paul means, and then we'll come back to 1 Thessalonians. I want you to have a, a grasp for what... How did Paul think about the gospel? 
How did Paul think about um, the gospel coming to a people, a, a church, um, a, a city? In Romans chapter 1, look at verse 11. Paul says, For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you and so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul is saying, I want to come to you, and I'm looking forward to the Christian fellowship that I'm going to have with you Romans. Now look at verse 15. And this might be confusing to some people. So, for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. Wait a minute, he's going to go to believers. He's looking forward to fellowship with believers, and he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you believers. And so look at the last chapter of Romans. Go to chapter 16, verse 25. Okay, so that's what the first chapter of Romans says. Let's look at the last chapter of Romans. Chapter 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. He's able to establish you Roman <coughs> Christians according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. He's able to establish you according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept Secret long uh, for long ages past, which I think is the gospel as it formed the church, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of the faith, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. So, okay, wait a minute. Paul's thinking about going and visiting Christians, and in the first chapter he says, I'm eager to preach to you the gospel. And in the last chapter, he says, uh, you need to be established according to the gospel. Okay, that, that's, that's interesting. If we, tend, if, if we think that the gospel is primarily for those who are not yet saved, Paul is teaching us something much bigger about the gospel. And that's exactly what's happening. So you see what I'm holding up here in between? Okay, right here. This is Romans 2 through Romans 15. Book ends on this book. Right, I'm going to preach to you the gospel and the gospel is going to establish you. What's this then in between? Is it what you graduate from? Uh, you graduate from the gospel and you graduate to this? You leave the gospel behind because, well, that's what saved me. See, I got saved by the gospel. That's like a diploma that hangs on your wall. And every time you look at it, you go... Oh yeah, I graduated from college, and that that degree that was that was really special back then. I remember that. That was that was really sweet. But now, you know, I got to get to work. There's other things I'm after now. Is that what the gospel is? No, this right here from chapters two to fifteen is gospel theology, or it is theology that is independence upon the gospel. It is in accordance with the gospel. It is. Theology that is reflective of the gospel. It is inseparable from the gospel. Paul, in letter form, preaches the gospel to them in chapters 2 to 15. And he says at the end, and now you need to be established with that gospel. 
So when Paul says, back in 1 Thessalonians 2, this, is, this is, reveals the way that Paul does gospel ministry. He says, the gospel comes in words. The letter of Romans is a great example of how that works. And so for Paul, the leading concern as he reflects on his time and his ministry with the Thessalonians is that indeed the gospel did come and it engaged you. The, the gospel came in words. Look at chapter, now back in 1 Thessalonians, look at chapter 2, verse 2. Look at this concern that Paul has. But after, after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. You see, Paul is concerned that the gospel had to be spoken to them. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we what? Speak. The gospel had to be spoken to them. Look at verse 8. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become very dear to us. Look at verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. So Paul, his leading concern anywhere he went, and it's true here in Thessalonica, was that the word of of the gospel was proclaimed to them. What we need to keep in mind as we step into the lives of one another, as we serve together and serve one another, even as Christians, is that this is still our leading concern with one another, is that we speak about the gospel to each other. We don't speak about it like it's a diploma, like we've graduated from it, but what we're most concerned with is we want to engage one another still with the gospel. We need to help each other engage with the fullness of the gospel. Things like Romans chapter 2 to verse chapter 15. It would be a sad thing if we stepped into each other's lives and we only gave the impression that the gospel is that which converted us a long time ago, but now we really don't. I, you know, I'm trying to, We're trying to figure out what the revel, relevance of it is. I can remember not long after being saved, maybe even just a couple of years being saved in a church and hearing when the pastor would get to his part on the sermon where he would preach the gospel, I would check out. And I would actually say to myself, oh, there there must be a lot of unbelievers in here. I can remember thinking that way. That's wrong thinking. I mean, that's good. Look, the gospel needs to be for unbelievers, right? It's good news for the one who has bad news about his life. But it's not the only thing that gospel is. The gospel is for believers as well. Paul makes that very clear. Now, before we move on from this first um, ministry point here, is look in verse 5. Our, how does he describe the gospel? Our gospel. Uh, that's ownership. That's ownership. He, he could have just said the gospel, and we would probably feel most comfortable saying something like that, wouldn't we? When was the last time you said our gospel? When was the last time you said what Paul said in Romans 16, verse 25? My gospel. And look, we know what Paul doesn't mean. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, he says, I received this gospel. Paul didn't invent this gospel. Paul is not an inventor. He doesn't hold the patent to the gospel. It's not his in that sense at all, right? But Paul owns this gospel, doesn't he? In chapter 2, verse 4, he says, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So he's acknowledging, even in this letter, I was entrusted with this gospel, but he says, it's ours. In Romans, he says, it's mine. That's 
ownership. That's a bold statement to make. The aroma coming off of Paul in chapter 1, verse 5, is this. I own this gospel. This is mine. I'm not greater than it, but I I own it. Uh, Do you want something of that kind of ownership of the gospel? Do you have something of that kind of ownership with the gospel? Um, Do you want that kind of an aroma coming off you? It's not one of arrogance. Like you own it in the sense of it's a little possession and you're bigger than the possession. You're not. It's bigger than you. It actually owns you. But in return, you express this is mine. This is mine. I think we can be pressed in that direction a little bit. So our gospel did come to you. It just didn't come to you in what? Word only. And what concern follows this leading concern? It's number two. Ministry requires an uncommon messenger. Number two. Ministry requires an uncommon messenger. So, ministry has only one message. It's the gospel and it comes in words. Faith comes from what? Romans 10. Faith comes from, not from watching. Faith doesn't come from uh, seeing examples. Faith doesn't come from you putting those, uh, you imitating somebody else. Faith comes from hearing words. And those words come, they're about a speech about Jesus Christ. So ministry has only one message, and it does come in words. But equally so, ministry requires an uncommon messenger. God is not interested in words coming out, and it really doesn't matter what kind of messenger they came from. He is not interested in that at all. He is very concerned about the messenger who is speaking the words, and that's the next part here, Mark. Let me think about that. Um, well, I mean, I, the only thing I can think of are probably some really glaring examples of, of the bad, and that would be false prophets in the Old Testament and false teachers in the New Testament. Um, you got the example of uh, Simon the Magician in Acts, who believed... And then he came along, and then when he saw the Spirit of God came through the laying on of hands, he said, hey, I'll pay you for that. Um, So, you know, you you have some people who are a part of the group and a part of the message, but their life isn't uncommon at all. It's it's still common. So maybe uh, one of the important parts here is Yeah. I might know a guy is this kind of uncommon man until I Yeah. And and what I mean the best way that to answer your question is is by answering it it's probably not gonna directly answer it, but it's gonna answer it overwhelmingly by just describing to you here what an uncommon messenger is. And then it's just anything that's not that. Tom. Uh would you think that an uncommon messenger, you, you may not be able to see on the outside package, but 
what's uncommon is being attention. Mm. Yeah, wow, absolutely. One who continues to repent, and um, absolutely. Um, when you said, I'll pay you for that, and we've all read that. Mm-hmm. That sounds extreme. You go, who could want to do that? Yeah. that? Don't we want to pay for that when we want to gain what God has to offer by our works yeah. and not grace? Yeah, he doesn't eat. Like we're, we're prideful. We're what? Yeah. I want to pay for that. Let me do something for that. That's right. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a bold example of that. Well, let, let's press on with, with this, and let's let Paul tell us what an uncommon messenger is. Um, this is really what carries a lot of the weight in the first two chapters of First Thessalonians, is Paul's going to take a long time describing for us what an uncommon messenger he and his missionary team actually, what kind of messengers they were. Um, so this is not so much, this book is actually not so much about aiming to unfold um, the content, the details of the contents of the message. You're not going to really find anywhere in First Thessalonians a detailed description of the gospel. You'll see a little bit of something of it in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1. But what you find in great detail everywhere is Paul detailing the carrier of the message. So it's not so much on the content of the message, it's on the carrier of the message. Evidently, the attack going on in Thessalonica while Paul is away is they're not attacking so much the content of the gospel. What are they, what are they attacking? The guy who carried it, Paul. And so that's where Paul is directing this message. And, and so this is a great opportunity. The Holy Spirit inscripturates this from that setting so that you and I can be thinking about today in our setting Oh, I need to pay attention to the kind of carrier I am. Okay? That's a great opportunity for us. Paul says that the gospel came to them, but it did not come to you in word only, but also, watch this, it came in power, it came in the Holy Spirit, and it came with full conviction. Now, three prepositional phrases. What do these three prepositional phrases describe? There are two options here in verse 5. They can either describe, number one, the gospel message, meaning the gospel message came in power, the gospel message came in the Holy Spirit, and the gospel message came with full conviction, and that sounds very pleasing to our ears theologically, doesn't it? I, I mean, I don't even have to imagine how that could happen. That that's, makes sense. The Spirit comes, or the, the message comes with power, it comes with the Holy Spirit, and it comes with full conviction, right? Um, unfortunately, that's not what I think is going on here at all. The other option is, it's, the first one again is it's describing the gospel message. The second one is these three prepositional phrases are describing the gospel messenger. So it is the messenger who came with power, with the Holy Spirit, and full conviction. So Paul and his co-laborers are the ones who came with these things. You say, well, how do you know that in this text? Well, look at how these Three prepositional phrases are sandwiched between the two statements on either side of it. Um, the first one is, the gospel did not come to you in word only. Look, it came to you in words, but I want to tell you about more than that. And then look what comes after it, these three prepositional phrases. Um, you know, just as you know what kind of what? We prove to be among you. So yeah, the, the gospel came to you in words. But I want to talk about more than that, and you know what kind of men we prove to be. 
So he's not talking about the details of the contents of the gospel. He's talking about the details of the carrier of the gospel. He's talking about his team. Paul is focusing them beyond just the content of the gospel message. He's not trying to diminish the content of the gospel, but that's not where the attacks are coming. When Paul thinks back on his gospel ministry with them, what he remembers is this. He remembers there was power. And that power that accompanied my ministry, that there was a tangibleness of the Holy Spirit's presence when we were together, and we were full of conviction about what was going on. Fully convinced. Now, I think there's a, a good verse that's a parallel to this. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says almost the same thing. He says in chapter 2, verse 8, having so fond an affection for you, watch this, we were well pleased to impart to you, almost the same kind of language, not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. You see, it's almost a, a parallel kind of way of Describing it, we were concerned to impart to you the gospel, but you had to have us too. So in chapter 5, the first part of the verse there is modified, it's described by a comparison statement. Look at this, verse 5 again in chapter 1. Our gospel didn't come to you in word only, but it came in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. How do you know that, Thessalonians? How do you know that the words didn't come, the gospel didn't come merely with words, but there was power and there was Holy Spirit and there was full conviction? How do you know? How does the verse end? You know. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you. That's a weird thing to say. You and I wouldn't think to say something like that. We would think you'd know that it came with, that, that the, we wouldn't even go to the idea of, of describing the messenger. We would just be all about content. The gospel was clearly preached among you. You know it was because we had this amazing gospel outline that we gave to you. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just not what Paul is saying here. Paul is concerned to say, look, it came in words. But you know that there was power and there was Holy Spirit and there was full conviction because you know what kind of men we were. See, when he wants to point to the power and the Holy Spirit and the full conviction, he doesn't point to the contents, he points to the carrier. So those three prepositional phrases are describing how the carrier brought the content. It was with power. Paul was a man of power. Paul was a man of the Holy Spirit. Paul was a man of full conviction. And I think this needs to be recovered today. And this cannot be recovered apart from you being a man who will shepherd your heart to God in his word. The only kind of man who is a man of power, the only kind of man who is a man of the Holy Spirit, and the only kind of man who is one of full <coughs> conviction about the gospel ministry is the one who has brought his heart to God in the word of God. It can't come apart from one another. So the challenge is for us, because I think we are men who probably err on the side of being concerned about the content that the gospel comes in, that the gospel must come in words. And look, do not ever diminish that. Don't ever take a step away from that. Only look for ways to take greater steps in detailing and understanding, making the, the content of the gospel understandable. I want you to hear me clearly. There is no one here saying anything about back off on that. 
What is being said here is add something to that, not to the message. Keep that there, but work now and push yourself forward in your own pursuit of God so that you become a man of power, a man of the Holy Spirit, and a man who's fully convinced about this content that you're putting forth. Do you understand? Because I think that's what Paul is saying in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. The temptation for us is to say, well, I'm content. I'm content with the fact that I know they heard the gospel. I was clear about that. Look, be clear with the gospel, but don't be content that the only thing you were able to do was share with them. You need to be concerned that you are a man of power, that you are a man of the Holy Spirit, that you are a man who's fully convinced in your mind about what you're doing. Are we content to be unaware that we need power? Are, are we content to be empty of power? Are we content to be men who are forgetful that we actually still need the Holy Spirit? Are we content to be men who, we can say this, but you know whether or not there's actually really a full conviction in our own hearts about it, I mean, that's negotiable. We don't want to be that kind of man. Any Anybody can be that kind of man. This is an uncommon man. We need to be uncommon men. Uncommon messenger. So discipline one, I think, for us in build, shepherding your heart to the word of God, um, you get to see some things here in, in chapter one, verse five, that will be results of that. Men of power, men of the Holy Spirit, men with full conviction. So what's the answer? Guys, you've got to shepherd your heart to the gospel. Plead with God for his power. Open his Bible up and say, God, make me into a man of power. God, make me into a man of the Holy Spirit and make me into a man who is fully convinced. It's God's desire, guys, that the lost and the saved would hear the gospel from that kind of messenger. That's his intent. He wants them to hear it from a man who evidences the power of the gospel, who evidences the Holy Spirit of the gospel, who evidences the full conviction the gospel brings. Don't be content to think high of the gospel and the content, but think low of what your character and your ability must be. You cannot do that. Think high of the content of the gospel and think high of the kind of man you must be to bring that gospel, right? That's the message of 1 Thessalonians 1. Please. Yeah, I think I think those three um, prepositional phrases are very closely connected. Rather than thinking of, uh, let's see, it's a random grocery list. We need eggs, we need meat, and we need uh, some get some toilet paper. I mean, three things that you wouldn't put together. I think these are things that flow together. A powerful Holy Spirit convinced man. Um, it's a great question. All right. Third ministry statement. Requires an uncommon messenger. Number two, ministry involves imitation. Verse six. Ministry involves imitation. Verse six, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. You became imitators 
We were with you for about three months and, and you were imitators of us and of the Lord. Now, what is this and doing here? You became imitators of us and of the Lord. Let me tell you what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying, well, when I was with you, I gave you two different examples to follow. And you can pick from either one of them. You can imitate us, and then on the other days of the week, you could imitate the Lord. And you could just kind of pick. That's not what he's saying. He's not trying to say you've got to look in two different places for these examples that you were imitating. What he is saying is, my life was in the same trajectory and the same line of sight as the Lord's. And so in imitating me, a tangible example that you could see in front of you easily, you were also imitating the Lord. Not because Paul is the Lord, but because his life is in line with the Lord. Paul's life is not out of alignment with Christ's pattern of life. Paul's life is not divergent from Christ's pattern of life. It's in the same trajectory. And, and this needs to be our prayer and our plan, is to align our lives, live our lives in such a way that when somebody looks at us, they don't have to say, well, wait a minute, let me look away from you because I've got to go find where Jesus is. Because I don't see him anywhere where I'm looking right now. Just a minute. And then they turn away and have to look someplace else. No, when they see us, they need to be seeing through us to Jesus. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 1. Does now follow me as I follow Christ? And it's interesting the way that lost man thinks. Lost man, especially the ones who become famous, who become well-known. What do they say? I'm not a role model. Don't look at me. Um, they don't want that. But God's design is that we would give to one another not just the gospel, but that we would also give to one another an example to follow. And so here's where your your prayer request can now be um, shaped. God, make me into a man that is a clear reflection of you so people can imitate me. Specifically in verse 6, how did they imitate Paul? Um, well, the rest of verse 6 tells us. Having received the word in much tribulation. That's how they imitated Paul. You received the word in much tribulation. Um, look what he said in verse 2 of chapter 2. After we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, you guys know this, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid amid much opposition. So they knew that Paul had, as a gospel messenger, suffered greatly, and now they are imitating him by suffering also, by having received the word with much affliction. Guys, you know what we need to remind ourselves of every day? You and I need to remind ourselves of truly where we live and what the conditions are around us where we live. Listen, we live in enemy territory. You and I live in enemy territory today. There is a rebel prince who is fighting against our king everywhere around us. And he has hostile rebels against God also all around you. We live not at Disneyland. We live in a volatile place. And God's design and God's plan is the only way to receive, is that's the only way to receive the gospel. Nobody can receive the gospel in a safe place. That's the way God's plan is right now. This is enemy territory. 
He has invaded it with his gospel messengers, and the only kind of person who can receive the good news of the gospel is one who is in enemy territory, surrounded by enemies. But I don't know what happens, in my mind anyway, I don't know, you can evaluate your own thinking, it is, I forget this. And maybe it's because I just tied closer to a, a, a maybe a, an insulated environment, you know, working more closely with the church and being more surrounded by that than I am with the world, like many of you may. You, you may not wrestle with this at all, so I don't want to project this on you, but I forget that I live in a place that hates my Jesus and hates me. They hate my kids, and they hate the idea that one of their co-rebels might actually believe this message. And so that when they do receive it, then they go, they turn on them immediately and go after them. But I love what he says next. Look at verse 6. He received the word. You imitated us receiving the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Um, I usually think that tribulation and turmoil are joy killers. The only way I'm going to be a joyful man is if there's no problems in my life and if everybody just likes me, then I'm a happy guy. But this tribulation does not kill joy. Did you see that? You receive the word in much tribulation and there's joy of the Holy Spirit right there. Now, I want to take you back. This joy of the Holy Spirit, I think, is a, is a joy that Jesus talked about with his apostles on the last night. Go to John 15. Keep your spot in 1 Thessalonians and just turn back to John 15, verse 11. John 15, 11. Jesus tells him, he says, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy then may be made full. So my joy in you, and then as a result, your joy will be made full. Uh, look at chapter 16, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice you will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Look at verse 22. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made, what? Go to chapter 17, verse 13. Jesus now prays, and he's praying for his apostles, and he says, But now I come to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. This is a joy that is from Jesus. I think Paul talks about it as it's, it's the joy of the Holy Spirit. And tribulation and turmoil and even the death of Messiah can't ultimately take it away. It's Jesus' joy and he gave it to him. And tribulation can't touch it. My versions of joy that I have are very weak and very stupid. Because all it, has, all it takes is something to go wrong and my joy is gone. It goes away. That's why Christ gives his joy because trouble can't touch it. He's even, on, he's even on the cross. He's thinking about the cross and he looked. What, what does Hebrews 12, 2 say? For the joy set before him, he endured the what? The cross. The cross couldn't even take his joy. 
away. We need that joy. And they were imitating that as Paul was jo- Paul gets beat in Philippi right before this. He and Silas, and they're in the prison in the middle of the night. And what do they do in the middle of the night? With sore backs, because they got beat with rods. They're singing in the middle of the night. Plead to ultimately imitate Christ so as to be an example to each other. But it's a joyful life centered on the word, even though you're in the midst of trouble. They became imitators for a reason or a purpose, and that leads to number four, the fourth ministry statement. Statement. Yeah, question. Uh, what was that uh, reference again for Hebrews? Hebrews 12, 2. Yeah. Number four. Ministry must produce not only exemplary lives, that's what we just saw, right? A, a life that's an example to live, but effective lives. And I'll explain what I mean by this. So your blank is the word effective. Ministry must produce not only exemplary lives, but effective lives. Watch this in verse 7 and 8. So that indicates purpose here in verse 7. Okay, so they became imitators of us. For what purpose? So that you became an example. It it reveals that there's an, in, in, in verses 6 and 7 here, there's an imitation chain reaction that's taking place here in gospel ministry. Watch this. Christ is being imitated by whom? Paul. Paul becomes an example for whom? The Thessalonians. And now what are we finding out? The Thessalonians have become an example to all the others around them. That's amazing. That's an imitation chain reaction that takes place. They are an example for all in Macedonia and Achaia. To all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. This is why you must set your mind on um, and forge it in your gospel ministry. Um, and you must set your mind on even beyond this body that is currently here. Um, listen, if you aim only to imitate Christ yourself, you're aiming too low. You can't, get, you can't miss that. You have to do that first. But if you're thinking just for yourself... You know, I just, I just want to be like Christ. That's good. But you need to think more. You need to be like Christ so that what? So that what? So that somebody else gets close enough to you and goes, you know, thank you for being a helpful, ex- helpful example to me of what Jesus Christ is like. And if that is all that you think about, you're still not thinking as far as you could think and must. Because what? What do you want for the one who's imitating you? To become what? An example for somebody else to imitate. Right? You must aim for imitating Christ as an example for others, yes, but that's not enough. Aim for those following your example to become examples for others to follow. So there's like three levels of of imitation going on here. There's Christ in you, but you want to push and and be prayerful that, that... Christ in you, and then another would imitate you as you follow Christ. But then you even want to be praying for the one who's following you, that they would become an example for another to follow. So ministry does indeed produce exemplary lives. Now, Paul offers an explanation in verse 8 of this imitation chain reaction that has taken place. And it's the explanation of, uh, here it's what we mean by an effective life. Look at this in verse 8. 
For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. That word sounded forth, is that verb is an intense blast of the trumpet. But Paul is likening how the word came out of them like a big trumpet blast in first century. Uh, a distinct sounding forth, like a trumpet piercing the air in a military conflict, telling the soldiers to get up and go. The word came forth from them in a crisp, clear, unmistakable sound like that. And notice how far this biblical blast went. Verse 8, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but also in every place, your faith has gone forth. Your faith has gone forth. That is a very solid example they're setting. That is a very effective sounding forth, okay? And all this happened in such a short period of time. What effective lives these imitators were were living. And I think this is the key statement that helps you to know how effective were these Thessalonians in in imitating Christ and sounding forth the word. Here's how effective they are. How does verse 8 end? Look at it. What does it say? Look look at it. What does it say at the end of verse 8? What does Paul say? I'm I'm at a loss for for words. Really? The Apostle Paul. At a loss for words of what to say. Yeah, that's exactly what he's saying. That's a pretty effective example that the Thessalonians had become. Paul says, all I can do everywhere I go in Macedonia and Achaia and any other place, anybody I come across, when I start to tell them, they go, yeah, 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 Paul, that's old news. You got the old news, Paul. Paul doesn't have anything else to say because they, the Thessalonians, this young church that he spent less than three months with, is saying it so effectively everywhere. Isn't that amazing? You know what we need to be praying for? We need to be praying that the next generation after us that we're laboring in, that you'll labor in, that they would put you out of a job. That they would go so much further in their proclamation and in their exemplary living that you would just be old news. Paul doesn't have anything more to say. That's incredibly effective. I can't add to what they're saying. So start praying for those who are following you, to God, for, for God to raise them up so that they, were, they, they will speak more broadly than even you. I think we just, I, think we, I know for me, I aim, look, you only can hit what you're aiming at, and you don't hit what you're not aiming at, Right? And so let's make the target as big and as broad as it's supposed to be so we've got a better chance of hitting these things. And there can be no empire building, self-empire building going on because the guy or the man or the men or the group of men who are out there saying, you know what, this is our deal. This is our baby. And these guys who are coming up, they're they're getting sharp. You know, Uh, They can't have what we've got because this is our power. This is our deal. No, no, no. That is gospel-less. That is foreign to the Apostle Paul. The way that church leadership should be thinking is, um, we'll, we'll fortify ourselves as best as we can so that the guys who come up after us have got a place to stand on top of us, on top of our dead bodies to see even higher and to be able to proclaim even further. That's what we have to be thinking, is the next generation of guys who are coming up 
are being trained and who are becoming such a, examples of Christ to their culture they live in and can sound forth the word of God even more effectively and more broadly than what our proclamation is. That's a joy. I think somebody said that once, very close to Jesus. He must increase and I must decrease. Was there a question over here? Alex. Well, I was, it just made me think about um, the difference between the message and the messenger. I think you get lost a lot of times with the messenger. The, the message never changes. The messenger might look different. But I think uh, in today's society, we get so wrapped up in who's, who the messenger is that we lose. It, it seems like it's all about the messenger now. Yeah. That's a, that's, a good, that, that's a good foil for us to run this through. By putting emphasis on becoming an uncommon messenger, here's what you need to keep in mind. That doesn't mean that the uncommon messenger becomes a distraction to the what? Message. He is not a detractor from the message. So you can focus on becoming an uncommon man and it only accentuates what? The gospel the content. That's what we're talking about. And you know what? This is where we've got to shepherd our hearts really well because we will at any point in the flesh just ever so slightly mess that up and become a distraction. And that's why we have to be surrounded, be close with one another so that we can help each other stay away from that kind of a thing. So let's review through the first four. Ministry has only one message, the gospel. But equal with that, Ministry requires an uncommon messenger, one who's not going to detract from the message, but is going to accent the message because his life will be full of power and the Holy Spirit and conviction. And that kind of a life doesn't become one that takes away from the gospel. That's a life that accents the gospel. Thirdly, ministry involves imitation. And fourthly, there's an imitation chain reaction that takes place, right? Ministry must produce not only exemplary lives, but effective lives. Now, lastly... Number five, ministry labors for nothing less than repentance. Ministry labors for nothing less than repentance, verses 9 and 10. They themselves report. Who are the they themselves? Look down. Don't look at me. Look down. Find the they themselves. Who are they? And who are the the ones in verse 8? Those who are from... Macedonia and Achaia and in every place. They report. Okay, so there's a report that's being circulated and there's two parts to the report that Paul is hearing. So this is kind of a, I don't know, this must have been interesting for Paul to bump into people from just the, the general region and they would say, hey, you know what we heard about? We have a report to give you. Here's the first part of my report and here's the second part of my report. And, and Paul would have been thinking, wow, it's just there. How do you know? But this is the report that's circulating. Here's the first part of the report in verse 9. They themselves report, number one, about us. What? They report about us. What kind um, or what kind of reception we had with you. And that's the first part of the report. The word reception means what kind of a welcoming we had with you. It's, it's all about the receptivity that Paul and his missionary team had with the Thessalonians. The word had gotten out that the Thessalonians and Paul just hit it off and connected and were together and they were well received. That Paul was a receivable 
man. He wasn't a difficult man to receive. There was, he was a, a man that you wanted to welcome in and that the Thessalonians were welcomed and thought dearly of by Paul too. He says that in chapter 2, verse 8. We had a fond affection for you. You had become very dear to us. The kind of relationship they had was a very receptive one, mutually speaking. Paul's manner among them, the kind of man that they proved to be among them, his behavior among them, it wasn't an obstacle to the gospel. It was a compliment for what the gospel wants to accomplish in the lives of, of those it comes into contact with. And how do you know? That's the second part of the report. Number two in verse nine. And they themselves report how you turned to God. You turn to God from idols. That is repentance. Turning to God away from your idols. A 180, right? 180 degree turn. In the minds of the witnesses who were out there in, in the area, and the, the, the Macedonians, the Achaeans, the believers in every place, two things stood out in the report. How welcomed, how well received, how receivable Paul was, and... How repentant the Thessalonians were. What a reception took place, and man, did their lives change. You understand? That's gospel ministry. People's lives connecting together, and the next generation, the first generation of believers coming in, their lives completely change with repentance. This is what we mean by ministry labors for nothing short of this repentance. I think the temptation for the church always is to be drugged backwards and it's just to slide down the hill, it's to stop swimming and just let the current take you down. For the most part, I think we probably, we, we really like the first part of the report. We like to be liked by the people we minister to. We, liked to, we, we like to be received by them. And we like it that people might be able to even report that that's just a really nice guy. That's a really nice church. Really kind people. We want to be known as being receivable. Um, that we receive others. We want that kind of report circulating about us. But the Macedonians and the Achaeans and the others, they couldn't only think of that aspect of gospel ministry. They simultaneously also thought about how these idol worshipers aren't idol worshipers anymore. They turned to Jesus. They had repented. What does that turning to um, Jesus, uh, turning to God from idols look like? Look at verse 9. You turn to God from idols. There's two infinitives here. To serve and, verse 10, to wait. So what did their turning to God look like? They turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, to worship, to serve, to submit to a living and true God. And they turned to God from idols in order to wait for his son who's coming from heaven, the one he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. So ministry labors for nothing short of repentance. That means as you're thinking about ministry, guys, you're thinking of transformation of lives. You're thinking, I, I can't 
I can't miss transformation of life. I don't want to stop until I see transformation of life. Guys, if, if all you ever end up being is just likable in gospel ministry, but other people around you don't actually change, you should be very unsatisfied with that. Because that falls short of gospel ministry. That might be popular ministry today. To be well-liked. To be well-spoken of. But gospel ministry is where you are that and repentance takes place. Transformation of life. So let it break your heart as you watch people around you who haven't changed yet, who haven't repented yet. Let it, let it humble your heart and, and, and be motivation to, to continue to press on with the gospel in their lives until you see them transformed. Now, you should plan to be nice. You should plan to be kind to people. You should plan to be likable. Okay? You should plan for people. You should be aware of people that they need to be welcomed when you're serving them. Let me give you an example. If you lead a small group, if you want to lead a small group someday, you should be thinking, people are coming to my home or I'm going to go to so-and-so's house and, and you know what? I want the people who come in, I want them to feel like that they've stepped into a welcome place. You should be planning for that. But you must aim for repentance with that, right? Your receptivity has to be in line with and a tool that God would love to use to grant repentance also. Can I give you a similar example from Paul? Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Watch this. This is all about how uncommon a messenger of the gospel is supposed to be. Look at this. This is a familiar passage. Watch. Uh, 2 Timothy 2 verse 24. Paul is talking to Timothy and he's saying, look, the Lord's slave, that's you, Timothy, you must not be quarrelsome. Okay? That's the negative of what he's saying, uh, of what happened in 1 Thessalonians. He's saying, look, let me put this into the modern vernacular. Uh, you can't be a jerk, Timothy, as you preach the gospel. You can't become a man who's just going to quarrel about every little thing that everybody says, nitpicking everything apart, to just make a little quarrel about everything. Don't be quarrelsome in that sense. But positively, be kind to all. Be able to teach. Be patient when you're wronged. And with gentleness, be one who's correcting those who are in opposition. That's a receivable guy. That's a guy that you would welcome into your life. A guy who's kind, a guy who's able to teach, a guy who's patient when you're wrong. A guy who, who's gentle when he corrects you. That's the kind of guy you want to have as a friend. Now notice what is said next. Verse 25. If perhaps God may grant them repentance. So what does God use as a tool to help grant somebody who needs to repent repentance? It's the uncommon bond slave of Christ. One who's a kind man, um, who's gentle, who's able to be patient when wronged, who can correct. God would love to use that kind of man to grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will.
I think I think we make um, maybe an overreaction to men or ministry leaders who get in the way of the gospel. And I think we may overreact to a place. I want to be careful about how I say this because I want to make sure that I understand it right and communicate it clearly so it's not misunderstood. And so I think what we can do is, is sometimes is we can put such a de-emphasis on ourselves that all we think that matters is just the content. Look, if you don't have the right content, there's no hope for them. Right? You hear me? The right content has to be there. But what we also need to give much thought to is the kind of man who brings the content. It's not the content isn't hasn't been designed by God to operate on its own, independent of the messenger. And I think sometimes we think that you can be a jerk with the right content and people are supposed to repent. And that's not what God has in mind. God wants the right content. And he wants a, a certain kind of bond slave. He wants a certain kind of messenger carrying the content. And so we need to put these things close together and not separate them. The right kind of man who does this is a man who is shepherding his heart, he's taking care of his home, he's a man of integrity, and he understands the gospel. That's why number one on your homework is what is the gospel? Right? Rich. Great point. If the other side of, of um, that would be um, maybe a, a not pushing this forward as far as it could go is just being content to be a godly man, but never sharing the content of the gospel. And everybody in this room probably falls more on one side or the other, and you've got to know who you are, and you've got to shepherd yourself out of your deficiencies. Yeah, Alex. Well, well that's the beauty of the message, right? I mean, you can't, you can't separate yourself from it. That's the beauty of the of the gospel. Is the it's not like there's a separate message or a separate content body of content that makes the messenger the right kind of man, but then he needs to focus on another body of content that then changes the people he's talking to. It's the same message that shapes the messenger into being the right kind of carrier of the gospel, and that same content is then what will bring transformation and repentance there. Mark. Meaning grace mint guys are the guys who are, are, really are the nice guys. Saying, you know, truth smooth, you know. Yeah. Let's be buddies and, and my, my life will somehow magically appear. And, you know. and then the other guys that are harsh with harsh the truth. And, and 
But it's, it's the truth by golly. Uh, yeah. And, and other than just saying to myself that's irritating, I didn't really have a... <laughs> 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 yeah. Something to go to to say, no, that, that's why it's irritating. Because it's not true. It's not possible to right. be a grace guy and lack truth or right. be a truth guy and lack grace. Paul doesn't even understand it, that kind of a dichotomy right. that would be made. And I've heard it in every circumstance, in, in the pulpit, mm-hmm. from small groups, in every circumstance, not, not here, but over the last 15 years. Uh, yeah. And I never understood why it was so offensive. You'll, you'll come across it here, from the guy who's standing in front of you at times to your elders and to others. I mean, we're all capable of this. I, I know that in my first couple of years of being a Christian, I... I became very zealous for truth in a way that I, if I was a jerk, you know, it didn't matter if they heard the gospel. I, if, we, if, it was, if it was kind of a heated argument and I, I may have, you know, said some biting things in ways that, well, I'm sorry if you're offended, but that's the truth. But I mean, I, I've heard it enunciated with those words over and over and over. Yeah. There are grace guys that are, not, not guys that slip up and, and accidentally fall, accidentally in one place or another, but enunciated Yeah. Yeah. Well, was, you know, and this goes back to something you were talking about early on. That I mean, to me, there's something happening in our generation with respect to the gospel that's really exciting. I mean, I grew up, you know, in the '70s, and the gospel was the four spiritual laws. Mm-hmm. It was steps to peace with God. It was the sermon on Christmas Day, and the gospel was not anything beyond. It's what. Someone is converted by, and to me, it's exciting what mm-hmm. the gospel really is. Is now coming back, or I, you know, I guess. Right. I mean, there was a day when the people knew what the gospel was, but there was a number of generations where it was not what it really is. Right. And, and that's unfortunately, Jeff, it's only in some circles. Only in some circles. But but it is it is true in in this sense that I mean you see you see a more intentional effort being made in pockets out there and maybe it's just because but the world you know keeps getting smaller in a sense with technology we can see those pockets more but there there's a recovery of of a gospel that's a big the interesting thing that's happening also at the same time is there's the character of some of these guys that were is now becoming really questionable of who are proclaiming this gospel. Um, and we shouldn't be surprised that there would be an attack like that. Because if God wants these two things put together, what would the devil try to do them? Attack the content or attack the carrier, right? David? I think it's, it's kind of exciting right now to like, see what's going on on this big platform of uh, in vivo because you can't shut the guy up. <laughs> It's, a, it's an interesting day we live in. Polarization is taking place in greater and greater ways, unfortunately. But um, well, maybe fortunately for the gospel. Scott, yeah. 
please then. As we're talking about this, you know, when we're talking about <coughs> imitation and leading to repentance, and I wonder if <coughs> um, uh, an inappropriate focus on the um, words of the gospel leads to people who uh, love the words of the gospel but have not made the connection with Jesus mm. because Jesus is the gospel. Mm. And when you become enamored with Jesus, it's hard to be a jerk with the gospel. Yeah. I know for me, I, I met Jesus um, as an eight-year-old. Uh, I was scared to go to hell, ready to receive Jesus, lived in a strong Christian home, emphasis on Bible reading and memory and all these kind of good things. And I knew all the truth, but with arrogance. Hmm. And really just believed it all the right things that people thought well of me until I met Jesus. Hmm. And that was completely transformative. And I wonder I, I wonder if that's the defining factor, calling Jesus. And so he imitated Jesus and then there was imitation to be done from Thessalonians and that was what was contagious. That was what provided him with the humility and the understanding of who he was and what the message was relevant for. Yeah. And you repent to a person. You don't repent yeah. to a truth. And you don't love the truth apart from Jesus. It, right. it, if you do that, you've made an idol of it. Yeah. And that's a that, that's a that's a great point, and that's what we're trying really trying to emphasize with with discipline one, and that's a, you said it in a good way, um, that you don't want to just merely um, reduce the gospel to um, truth and um, and some some uh, some re- some responses that you must have to the gospel, like repentance and faith. Um, if you outline those in such a way that Jesus uh, becomes a secondary kind of figure and all that, you've really gutted the gospel of its power. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, any time that we do that, we're, gonna, we're going to mask the power of the gospel to transform ourselves first as carriers of the gospel, but then we're also going to mask the power that is present to change a life as well. So Jesus has to stay central to the whole. Rich? It's almost a bit of a... He's saying not to stick Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would even say this morning, I would encourage you guys who are dads um, to push this discipline three thing that we're learning about the kind of carrier you must be of, a, of the content. Push it, push it back into discipline two, and ask yourself how you're doing with your kids. You're bringing the the content of the gospel to your children, um, and ask yourself, do you want them to like you, or do you want them to change? And that's the wrong question. That, that question reflects the dichotomy that is not there. So you say, no, no, no I'm not going to answer that way. I, yes, I want to be liked by them. I want to be a father that is receivable, but a receivable father for the purpose of repentance for them. So keep that in, even in front of you that um, yeah, you want your kids to like you. And you might have to say some hard things so that they'll repent. And God does not have those two things at odds with each other. We think they might be at odds, but they're not. So we need to correct that thinking. All right. Guys, we need to wrap it up, and you need to take another plate of food home.
or another bite on the way home. You're, you're all thinking, I will just die if I have another biscuit. But um, you should try anyway. <laughs> but let's pray. Father, thanks so much for your word. Thank you for this chance to think about these things. Lord, I pray that you would make us into men um, by your word and by your spirit. Lord, make us into men of power, your spirit, and men of full conviction. Father, I pray that you would not let us miss the 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 call to imitate Christ ourselves personally, but, but I pray, Lord, that you would push us beyond even that so that we might think about those who might um, imitate us. And then, Lord, help us to push a little bit further so that we labor in the lives of those who are following us um, in such a way that others will even be able to imitate them and that they will be examples to others. I pray, God, that we would want to be received well by people, but that we would want to be received well so that repentance might take place. So, Father, as there are oftentimes uh, ways for us to easily drive wedges between things that you have there no desire for there to be any space between, help us to take this wedge out if we've put one there between the carrier and the content of the gospel. We, but we know that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the a word of Christ only. It doesn't come by the carrier. I don't have power. None of these men have power to change a life. But, but you have made a relationship. You've, you've made a marriage between the carrier and the content where the, the carrier must be a godly man, an uncommon messenger. Make us into that for our family, for our roommates, for the world that we live in, for the church we are a part of. And we ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys, for coming. Eat some more food, and we'll see you next year.